were drowning in a sea of sin, going down for the last time when you called upon his name. He reached down his nail-scarred hand, and he lifted you up. So remember he's done in your heart. He took you from sin and strife and gave a new start. He took your broken life and he made you complete. So take off those crowns of them at the Savior's feet. Do you remember when with all your heart you longed to serve Him, but you didn't think that Jesus could ever use someone like you? But look how he's used your life since he brought you out. So remember where you were back then and thank him for where you are now. Give him the glory for what he's done in your heart. took your broken life and he made you complete so take off those crowns of glory and cast them at the Savior's feet so take off those crowns of glory and cast them at the Savior's Well, amen. That's, that's a great song. I like that. Well, praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We'll use this tonight as the springboard in our t- series tonight. Dealing with money and possessions. And again, it's not so much about giving as it is about our attitude in giving is what we're dealing with. We're talking about all of that. And we'll go ahead and kind of touch on the, a couple of the areas that we've already touched on. And we'll kind of continue with the study. But... We're dealing again with that money and possessions, the believer's attitude and outlook. Well, that's important tonight. It's very important. So we're going to look at that a little bit more in detail this evening. Now, again, um, we know that the Lord talked a lot about things like money. And uh, we also know that our world has changed significantly. I mean, it's always been important, but it does seem today that probably more than ever, it has a real grip on people. 
more so probably than ever, at least in my lifetime, uh, as we, I often, I've quoted this a number of times every time we have the series, but this Peter Grandich, he was an ex-Wall Street guru, if you will, a financial counselor, even to this day, and he points out, he says, quote, our whole culture now is built on the premise that we have to have more money and more stuff to feel happy and secure. Public storage, he says, is the poster child for what's wrong with America. We have too much stuff because we've bought into the myth fabricated by Wall Street and Madison Avenue that more stuff equals more happiness. Boy, I tell you what, I think he's on to something, don't you? I think he is. And if you don't think he is, maybe you need to look around you a little more. I'm telling you, things are just about what the world revolves around, things. And uh, boy, I'll tell you what, even as believers, if we're not careful, we find ourselves bound by those things. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, you're there, I trust. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We understand that in the context he's dealing with the fact that Christ was humble and that he ultimately yielded himself even to Calvary, that he was willing to go to Calvary, die on the cross for our sin. We understand that. But what we also see here in the passage is just a basic principle. I mean, we're to have the mind of Christ. We're to have his outlook. We're to have his viewpoint of things. We should see things the way he does. That's important. We ought to have his mind on everything. And we understand that the mind of Christ is found in the word of God. We know this. And as a result of that, we need to know the word of God then. If we want to know what God thinks about something, we need to know what he says about it. Because it's found in the word of God. And so we are very inclined, or ought to be inclined, to dig into the word of God and say, now, how do you feel about everything that's going on around around us in this world, Lord? How do you see it? What's your perspective? What's your viewpoint? And um, we ought to adopt his particular outlook and viewpoint. And so we talked about the fact that, well, we talked about our perspective concerning money and possessions. And uh, through the course of that conversation, we noted a number of things that says, now listen, if if some of these things are true about you, you just may uh, be a slave to the pursuit of money and possessions. And we listed a number of things and we'll not belabor those tonight, but we took the time to do that because we don't want to be a slave to the things of this world. We don't want to be slaves to anything we own. We need to be yielded to Christ and available to him. Then we noted our position concerning money and possessions. And we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1, and we noted in that passage that David, it says, assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes, and the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, the captain over the thousands, and the captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king. We took the time to consider our position concerning money and possessions. And when it was all said and done, what we really found was that you and I are simply stewards of God's heritage. That there's nothing that is really ours. Everything in our lives is God's. And that we are simply the stewards over all of his substance and his possessions. And so that is the biblical perspective in that regard. And that's how we ought to see things. And so tonight I want to pick up now after we've discussed those two areas and I now want to start asking some questions, some questions concerning money and possessions. And tonight I want to start by asking this question, do I have to be poor to please God? Do I have to be poor to please God? 
You know, it's kind of been a standing joke through the years, and it's not really so much the case today as it was maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. But it used to be the idea that, you know, you had to keep your preacher humble, right? So you didn't pay him nothing. That was kind of a standing joke years ago. Now, to be frank with you, pastors as a whole don't, don't really do that awfully bad like they used to. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Years ago, I mean, pastors often didn't make a whole lot of money. And, uh, that, and, and, and today it seems that a number, especially denominational pastors and pastors that are with certain types of ministries, they make pretty good money. They have nice packages, pay packages and things. And I had, you know, I've had pastors say things like to me, well, yeah, I've got some good benefits, but I'm real, I'm, I'm, I'm more, I'm real, uh, uh, what do you, they call it, see, um, cash poor. I'm cash poor. Now, I don't know what that means exactly, you know, I think what they mean is I don't have a lot of extra spending cash. Well, you know, it depends, you know, if you have a pay package and some of your benefits are wrapped up into that package, sometimes they're not reflected in the cash you receive, they're reflected in the benefits that you get. Well, pastors sometimes have tremendous benefits. Some pastors have all their utilities paid. Some pastors have their housing paid. Some pastors have a car allowance. Some pastors have a lot of things. And those are wonderful tools. And, and so, in a sense, things have changed quite significantly as a whole in that regard. And people thought maybe they were doing their pastor a favor in those days because I guess the poorer you are, the more spiritual you are. But that's not really what the Bible teaches. And that's not true about you. You don't have to be poor to be or to please God. You, you don't have to. That's a good thing, right? I don't know about you, but like I always say, green goes with every color suit I got. I mean, I, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, you know, and again, we'll talk, we've talked about the attitude a little bit, but there's nothing wrong with wanting a, some money in your pocket, right? Nothing wrong with that at all. So let's talk about that a little bit. Let's consider the scriptures and we'll go from there. But... Um, Boy, I tell you, this is an issue that through the years has been misunderstood at times. And if there's ever an abuse of religious abuse, like, and I mean, I'm not talking about somebody abuse. I'm talking about people that have the, the wrong attitude, that they've, they misinterpret scripture, or they really put emphasis on things they shouldn't. It's things like, um, you know, uh, well, you know, you're going to have to lock yourself in a closet and read your Bible for 12 hours. Well, that's ridiculous. You don't have to do that to be spiritual. And you don't have to make sure that you're so poor that you don't have any money to eat and you're, you're, you're starving to death because you're just trusting God and you don't want to... No, that, that's ridiculous. That's an abuse of the Scripture. That's a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches. There are religions that teach you to, 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 to you know, do terrible things to your body. Don't, don't feed yourself and don't do certain things and hurt yourself and do all kind of stupid stuff to prove your loyalty to God. That doesn't make any sense. It's not what the Bible teaches. Okay, so anyway, this area of being poor, you don't have to be. And so let's pray real quick, and then we'll just note a couple things in Scripture and see what we can learn. Father, thank you again for just being a God that we can, uh, Father, identify with through the Scriptures. There's no way, Lord, that we can ever, ever, ever even start to even think that we're even relatively on the same plane as you. You are so far beyond us. And yet, Lord, we are so thankful that you came to earth literally died in our place, paid for our sins so that we could have fellowship with you, our creator. Lord, tonight, help us to understand just the simple thoughts as we consider these issues of, of concerning money and possessions, so that we'd have the proper perspective. We'd have your mind on it, not our own or not the world's, but yours. Bless us and help us, we pray.
We need you in Christ's name. Amen. Again, it's very important to understand that spirituality is not measured by either the abundance or the lack of material goods in your life. That's very important to understand. Nowhere in the Bible does God specifically condemn anybody simply for having money. He does not do that. Just because somebody had money, he doesn't say, well, you're a bad person. You've got a lot of money. God never does that. You don't find that in Scripture. Now, he will address issues, according to Timothy, about people that do and warn people with money to be careful about their attitude toward their possessions. But he does not condemn people solely because they have more than others. Now, the Bible, again, does not say that the money is the root of all evil. It's a, it, it doesn't say that. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy 6.10. And again, a very important truth and a very important principle. Because sometimes we get the idea that money is inherently bad. It is not inherently bad. It is something that is paper. Paper is not bad. Okay? It is what it stands for in your life that will, choose, will determine whether it's bad or good. There's nothing wrong with buildings. We have a nice building here. Just having a nice building doesn't mean that we've compromised. I mean, just because you have something doesn't mean that you're bad. And so it's important that we understand biblically what it talks about, what it says about money and possessions. Notice he says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money, the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, it doesn't say... It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of it is. It's your attitude toward it. It's, it's your perspective again. And so as we address this issue of money and possessions in the Christian life, it's very, very important how you see those things. I mean, we talk about loving a wife or loving a husband and loving children and loving the Lord and loving our church and, of course, loving our pastor. That one's easy, right? Okay. But what about loving money? Money is a tool. My grandma used to say things like, you can enjoy food, but you shouldn't love food. She'd say, you shouldn't love food. Food's not something you're supposed to love. You, should, you may enjoy it, but you shouldn't love it. Because, see, the truth is, is that you shouldn't live to eat. You should... Wait, you shouldn't eat to live, you should live to eat. Wait, should, you should eat to live, not live to eat, right? I'll get it right sooner or later. And I'm sure that's in the Bible. My grandma told me it was. Just like she said, godly, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. It's gospel, Mark. It's gospel. I said, Grandma, I'm not sure if that's in there after all my years of Bible college and reading the Word of God. She said, it's in there. Don't question me. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Now, the principle's there, don't misunderstand me, but he doesn't quite say it quite like that. But the truth is, is that there's some things we shouldn't love, and one of them is money then. Because he says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. If something's the root of something, that means that everything that springs forth from it is directly resulting from the root. So the root's deep down in. If you love money, then he says it's the root of all evil. It means sooner or later, you're going to produce evil. Sooner or later, evil's going to overcome you. If you love money, I'm telling you, from that root is going to spring forth evil. That's a dangerous place to be as a believer. 
I don't want to sow seeds of evil. And so I'm not to love money. And, you know, we, if we're not careful, we teach our kids to love money, don't we? I mean, we really do. We put so much emphasis on it all the time. You know, you know one of the saddest things we can do, one of the most detrimental things you can do, is always praise the family member that makes the money. Wow, I'll tell you what, so-and-so's doing really good. Man, they just got a new job. They're making $80,000 a year. They got a new job. They're making $40,000. They got a new job. They're making $100,000. Boy, I'll tell you what, they're really doing good. They're doing great. Now, they're not doing so good. Man, they're just squeezing out penny by penny. I mean, they can hardly rub two nickels together. Wait, so, I mean, so, so if you don't have a lot of money, you're not doing good then. Money determines whether or not your family's good, whether or not your relationship's good, whether or not things are going well in your life. So that's what determines that. And what we do is we teach our kids that sometimes if we're not careful based on who we elevate and who we praise. You ask a child today in the Sunday school, would you like to be an NBA star? Or would you want to be a missionary on the foreign field? Who thinks they know what the answer would be? They want to be an NBA star. You want to know why? Because of the money. Because it's being elevated. We, we, it, it gets so much play in the media. Everything's about how much you possess. Everything's about how much you own. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But unfortunately, we really blow them out of perspective. And in the Christian life, it's so important as parents that we don't make money so vital and important that our children believe that's what they should be chasing in life. Because it could easily turn to the love of money. Again, I know you may not agree with me, and that's all right. You don't, you don't have to agree with me. But biblically and scripturally, I think there's a real premise for this. The love of money is a problem. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, we can sometimes almost breed that attitude in people. And that's a dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to do. Now, again, I, I, I believe that there ought to be a competitive spirit in every person that's out in the workforce. I want to be the best I can be. And if I'm going to work 40 hours and make 400, I might as well work 40 hours and make 4,000. I have no problem with that. Okay, I have no problem with that, all right? I don't. Uh, but, but what I do have a problem with is when the pursuit is for gain, that sense. Because biblically, that's where God draws the line. Hey, you can, money is not the root of all evil. The love of it is. Now, in the Bible, there are a number of Bible characters that were wealthy. And you probably could name some, but let's look at just a couple. First of all, Solomon. He was pretty wealthy. Hold on. I know what you're going to say, but let's not talk about that side of the book game. Let's just deal with him for a little bit what God has to say with him. Because I know he made, big mess. he made a big mess of things. This guy really made a mess of life. Solomon was the wisest man, and yet Solomon made the biggest mistakes in all the world. I mean, first of all, he had way too many wives. Bad move, dude. Bad move, all right? You know, didn't, didn't somebody tell him one is enough? You know, 700? Are you kidding me, right? I mean, come on. That right there is probably the biggest mistake. And we know that ultimately he allowed those wives to turn him the wrong way. You know, okay? So, you know, and, and we, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I can tell you right now, that'd be a tough pill. So that'd be a rough one. Now, again, I, I, you know, I, I know things are different and, and so forth and all that. But still, he violated some biblical principles. God had outlined some principles in that area. He violated them, and guess what happened? It cost him. But nonetheless, look what it says about him over here. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3. 
First Kings, no, yeah, First Kings chapter 3. Go all the way back into the Old Testament there. If you get to Chronicles, you're still too far ahead. You've got to go backwards. First Kings chapter 3. This is a, an, an amazing passage. It's one of those ones that every young man, every young lady ought to be reading. I mean, it's just a, a neat to see what God would do and did for this particular man. Notice what it says in chapter 3, verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Can you imagine God asking you, just to, listen, ask what I should give you. Would you, let me know what you want. What would you, what would you ask for? I mean, what would you ask for? I mean, and again, I know right now we're in church, so we're all spiritual. Wisdom. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, right, okay. You know, I think that, that he was already fairly wise to ask for wisdom. But, but let's be honest. If somebody came to, uh, let's just be what are some things that people would ask for if God said, uh, well, let's see, let's, let's ask the question here. Um, what, you know, ask what I shall give thee. What are some things they would ask for? Would ask for? I, I'll tell you what some things they'd ask for. Let me tell you one. A wife. A husband. You know, a hunk, a hunk of burning love. <laughs> give me somebody like the pastor, please. <laughs> okay, maybe not. But anyway... Something like that, all right? Something a lot better than that, I'm sure. But anyway, I'm telling you, people, people would, there are so many that if they said, you ask what you want from me, God, God said, just ask, and what do you want from me? And they'd say, I want a husband. I want a wife. What are some other things? Somebody might say, I want my health back. I want my health. Boy, I'll tell you what, I... Thank God, so far in my life, I haven't, I really don't know what it is to go without, uh, you know, good health. I really don't. And so I cannot understand what some people endure and go through. And if you're in dealing with those issues, my, I, I can understand why you'd be tempted to ask for help. I really can. Especially if you're in pain or if you're suffering. Or if possibly it appears that you don't have long to live. I can understand you saying, well, God, if there's one thing you could give me, it would be my health. Or like Hezekiah, you may ask for 15 more years. Hezekiah asked for 15 more years of life. Now, again, I'm just saying, if he, get, he asked you that question tonight, if that was the one question he asked. Now, I'm not saying you can't go to God and ask for all those things. But if he gave you this opportunity like he did Solomon, what would you ask for? Somebody else might say, then I'm set for life financially. That I never have to worry about paying my bills ever again. Well, that one might backfire on you. But anyway, but you know, because you could end up in a nursing home or something. You'd never have to pay a bill again, but you'd be stuck. In, I'm, I think weird, okay? I just think crazy. So you'd have to be a little more specific, okay? But anyway, you say, I want to be taken care of financially. I never want to have to worry about it. I want to be able to go and buy a double quarter pounder of cheese anytime I want. You say, that's no big deal. Well, I don't know. Maybe for you it isn't, but... They're pretty good. They're not good for you. I didn't say they were. And the Lord would have to, then you'd have to say, now help my health now. But anyway, 
But those are some things we may ask for. Hey, he's asking Solomon. Look at this. Thou hast shewed, he goes on to say, ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, thou hast shewed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne. And it is this, uh, as it is this day. Verse 7, and now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. How old was Solomon now? Does anybody know how old Solomon was at this point? How old was he approximately? Oh, no. He's a lot older than that. This guy's not a young spring chicken here. I mean, he's not like 20 years old here. He's not 18 years old. He's not 16 years old. He's lived a little life. Why is he saying I'm not a little child? We know Josiah was only eight when he took over the kingdom. I can see Josiah saying, Lord, I'm only eight years old. I'm a little child. Help me. Give me wisdom. Solomon is no little kid. He's a grown man. And he says to God, look at his perspective. See how he sees himself before holy God. And as he stands before this awesome responsibility that God has entrusted him to, this stewardship that he now has. And he says to God, he says, listen, I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. Verse 8, and thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? First of all, it's interesting here, isn't it? Notice that this heart here that he asked for and this, this, this thing that he asked for is an, is understanding, an understanding heart. <clears throat> what for? That, to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. You know, the the greater part of wisdom is being able to discern good to bad. You say, I'm a very wise person. Well, how are you doing with that good and bad stuff? Because if you're truly a wise man, a wise woman, you'll be able to discern between good and bad. You'll be able to make good decisions. You'll know what's right, you'll know what's wrong, and you'll make the right decision. See, we like to believe that we're very wise, but let's be honest. If we're not, if we're we're really honest with ourselves, we don't always make the right decisions. Sometimes we know what's right and wrong. We just don't do the right thing. That's not wise at all. See, don't tell me you're wise if you're not going to judge between, if you're not going to discern between good and evil, if you're not going to make the distinction between good and evil and ultimately make the right choices. The truth is many of us know the right things. We just don't do the right things. That's not being very wise. That's not being wise at all. And we've all been there. We all make those errors. We all have fallen short in that means, uh, that way. But the truth is, is if we want to be wise men and women, then we must, as Solomon said, we see somewhat of a definition here. Be able to discern between good and bad. And be able to judge the people. Be able to see things for what they really are. Notice he goes on to say, verse 10, And the speech pleased the Lord. That Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself 
understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked. Watch this. Both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. Notice again, this is very important because we're dealing with this idea. Do we have to be poor to please God? Well, obviously in Solomon's case, not at all. The fact was is that because he sought this understanding to judge the people that God had put him as steward over, God said, listen, not only am I going to give you that understanding, not only going to enable you to have the wisdom you need to rule my people well, but what I'm going to also give you are riches and honor. Riches. So obviously God did not have a problem with somebody having money. God did not equate Solomon. Okay, Solomon, guess what? If you have a lot of money, you're a bad person. You got a lot of money, you're wicked. You got a lot of money, you're sinful. No way. God wouldn't have given that to him if he thought that. So God rewarded him with riches. Now, again, the Old Testament's very different in one respect. The blessings that we receive in the New Testament are often spiritual blessing. Primarily spiritual. In the Old Testament, it was primarily physical. And we often see godly men and women with great things. They had a lot of possessions. But they did not... They, it wasn't, see, again, it doesn't matter. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in his perspective and attitude toward finances and possessions, he's looking at it and saying, listen, I have no problem with money. I have no problem with somebody having it. The problem I have is when they love it. When it is the priority. When it takes the precedence. And so Solomon was the wealthiest man. His attitude toward money and life we see toward the end. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter in Ecclesiastes 12. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Well, I mean, Solomon had the right spirit. He had the right attitude. He understood what it was really about at this point in his life as he's writing Ecclesiastes. And he looks at it and he says, now listen, when it's all said and done, he says, you, you know, the conclusion of the whole matter is simply this. We need to fear God and keep his commandments. I don't care if you've got millions in the bank or if you don't have any in the bank. I don't care if you've got a job making, you know, 200000 a year or if you've got a job just scraping out 2500 a year. I don't care. The bottom line is, is that it's all the same. Every last one of us have the same responsibility to God. That is to fear him and to keep his commandments. That is the whole duty of man. Man, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? So God doesn't look at one other person and go, oh boy, look at you. You've got a fabulous job. You've got a, a, you know, wonderful clothes. You've got a nice car. You've got a wonderful house. Eh, you guys, yeah. Eh, you're all right. That's not how God operates. God looks at all of us and says, all right, how you doing with fear and me? How you doing with that? I mean, how you doing with keeping my commandments? How you doing with that? Because, see, the person that has a bunch or person that has a little understands and realizes the same thing. That we're all just stewards of his possessions. 
his things. We see Job. You know, Job was the wealthiest man of his day. The wealthiest man of his day. Turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Not Job. Job. I I don't know how many years it was before I realized that that's not Job. I I, I know, I I was no theologian, let me tell you. I I would read that and I'd be like, that is not Job. Where's that in the Bible? There's a job, but not a Job. (laughs) He's the wealthiest man of his day, though. Look at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. That's an amazing statement right there. I feel like we're en route for going to the land of Oz again or something. But there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man, this is amazing, watch this now. That man was perfect and upright and one that feared God. Wait, what's the whole duty of man again? Anyway, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 sea asses and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And you know what? What did we say earlier? We said, wait a second. It's not that money is the root of all evil. It's the what? Love of money. You know, you know how I know and, and how we are confident that Job did not love his money? That he, he may have had a bunch of it, but he didn't love it? Well, look if you would in Job chapter 1 verse 20. We know how it went down. We know that he lost his children. We know that he lost his possessions. We know that he lost everything. I mean, it's amazing how quickly... I, I, and again, you, you can have your opinion on this and you can do your own study on it, but I'm very, uh, very confident in my mind that Job lost everything like that. Based on what I read, it was one thing after another. I mean, it was just, he gets this bad news. And he goes, oh, oh, hold on, somebody's at the door. Who is it? Oh, by the way, let me keep piling on, Job. I mean, there's never been a day as bad as the day of Job. I don't, I'm not sure that there ever has been. Outside of Christ himself suffering for our sin, I don't know if anyone's ever suffered like that, that quickly, that much at one time. We could take the time to read it, but in the end, when it's all said and done there in Job, by the time we reach verse 20, all of these horrible things have transpired. His children lost. His, his, his possessions lost. Everything that we would call valuable in this life, gone. He still had his health yet. That would be gone soon too. But at this point, he's lost all those things. Notice what it says in verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped. Wow. Have you ever really thought about how amazing this man was? I mean, think about it. He just lost 10 children at one time. He just lost all his possessions at one time. He just lost everything, all of his oxen, all of his cattle. He lost everything of value that the world says is important. Just like that. 
Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Listen, I I could ask the question in this room, how many of us could say what he's going to say next? But it wouldn't be a fair question. Because I'm going to be frank with you, there's not one of us in this room that can possibly know how we would answer that. And we certainly wouldn't answer the way he did without the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. We could never answer the way he did without God supernaturally intervening on our behalf. Notice what he said. He said, it's amazing. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's an amazing statement. After all of that. And it goes on to say, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. How many times have we said, well... Listen, when tragedy strikes like that, it's understandable that we get angry with God. We have to work through that anger. Did Job? So do we have to get angry with God? No, we don't have to then. We don't have to. You say, well, you don't understand. You've never, I'm not, I'm just saying, biblically, we see an example of a man who lost everything at one time. And the Bible says that he worshipped and that he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that he sinned not nor charged God foolishly. That's an amazing testimony. So you know what that says to me? He didn't love money. He certainly didn't love money. I'm just, I mean, it's just obvious to me. I don't know about you. See, spirituality is not measured by either the abundance or the lack of material goods. Never has been, never will be. Never will be. We could follow the Lord Jesus Christ in his life. You know what we'd find? We'd find that there was a group of wealthy women, or at least those that were well-to-do, that provided for him materialistically. We know that in John 12, 2, it says there were... And there they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Boy, Martha, she was a woman of means. She provided for the Lord. She met his needs. In Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it says, It came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom was seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of uh, Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. They obviously had something. God didn't look at them and go, boy, you guys have something. Boy, you have more than the average bear. That means you're wicked and you're sinful. You need to give that all up right now. You need to just do away with your goods. You shouldn't have a bunch of money. Money's not a good thing. It makes you evil. He never said that. He allowed them to minister to him. He allowed them to minister to him. So, money... It's not what God, God doesn't look at it like we do sometimes. You don't have to be poor 
to please God. You don't have to be. I want to encourage some of you guys, man. Get better jobs. I mean, sometimes if we're not careful, fellas, I'm just going to lay it out there. Sometimes we're so insecure and we're so afraid of stepping out. We're so afraid of failing that we won't take a chance. That we won't go forward. We don't pray about it. We don't go forward with it. We just say, I'm comfortable where I'm at. I'm afraid to take that next step, that leap of faith. I don't want to do that. What about your family? Make yourself a little uncomfortable, maybe. Force yourself to get some more education. Dig into some things. Study some things. Prepare for some things. Step out and try to do better if you have to. There's nothing wrong with doing better. Obviously follow the Lord and don't compromise your your place in his kingdom. Don't say, well, you know what? I'm just going to have to sell God out. I'm going to have to sell the church out. I'm going to sell my ministry out because I got to make more money. Don't love your money. But by the same token, it's not wrong to have it. I'm all about, listen, if I'm going to play a game of football, I want to win. If I'm going to play a game of baseball, I want to win. And by the way, I want to be the best on the court. And that's not quite the case anymore, for sure. I mean, I was playing baseball with the guys last Monday, and not this last Monday, but a week ago. And I mean to tell you, I was at third base as a, the, the, the church team. They, they need someone to fill in. Of course, they wanted me. But I still remember it vividly. I'm on third. The batter's just ahead. The ball was hit right over there. I took off after it. I played third base all the time for years. I know how to use a glove. I know how to catch a baseball. I ran over there to get it. And when I did, you got to understand, you got to, when you have hamstring problems, you got to bend different. But in the heat of the moment, I forgot. And I ran over. And when I did, I didn't get this way with it. I went this way. Oh, boy, I feel it already. And when I did, my leg locked up with like somebody stuck a knife back there. And I face planted. I ate some dirt. And boy, you want to talk about, it was embarrassing. Now they said it wasn't embarrassing. They just all were scared that I wasn't going to get back up. I want to be the best all the time. You know what, fellas? We need that kind of drive in our Christian life our spiritual life. We need that kind of drive in our walk with God, our relationship with Him. We need that drive in in our our relationship with our wives. I'm going to be the best husband. I don't want to be second. I want to be the best husband I can possibly be. I I want to be the best. Nothing wrong with that. And you know, that ought to translate even into the world that we live in and providing for our family. I want to be the best at it. Not, oh, I never want to compromise my walk with God or my relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want to ever put myself in a position where I'm neglecting the house of God and the things of God, but I will do all I can with God's help to be the best testimony out there in the world that I'm at. I'm going to make sure that I'm the best at what I'm doing. If I'm making tires, I'm going to be the best tire maker there is. If I'm flipping burgers even, I'm going to be the best. When I worked at McDonald's, we used to have races all the time who could cook the most hamburgers the fastest. And I won a lot because mine were still raw. (laughs) But I got them off the grill fast. (laughs) You could still ball them up, but, you know, know. no, I'm teasing. It wasn't that bad. I just want to encourage you, though, just to...
Be everything God wants you to be. Be the best you can be for him. And then let him lead you in these other areas as well. But, hey, listen, uh, you don't have to be poor to please God. Don't ever buy into that. But don't ever get to the place where you love money. Because if money's what motivates you, my friend, you're going to have some problems. Because you are, you're, you're kind of feeding the root of all evil. And it's going to come back and bite you. So make sure you don't love it. Father, we come to you. Thank you again, Lord, for this time we had, just the short time we had in your word. And we just ask, Lord, you'd help us, even these examples that we learned to be men and women of God. And then, 